0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Even as overall inflation continues to decline, the Federal Reserve says it will keep fighting to reduce prices until it achieves its targets. This as passenger and cargo traffic decline, And the New York Times reports that as traffic has increased, so have the number and rate of near misses in the U.S. air travel systems. We'll discuss that. Boeing prepares to resume deliveries of commercial aircraft to China, even as the relationship between Beijing and Washington remains fraught and the Chinese economy reels. Spirit Aerosystems has experienced another 737 production problem. A good week for both Boeing and Lockheed Martin, Poland formalized its order for AH AH-64 Apache helicopters, and Indonesia also formalized its order for F-15EX fighters. As the Marines have ordered more CH-53K helicopters and locked down the LOT-19 order for the F-35 Lightning II fighter. Brazil has opted for more Gripen E jets and we discuss how the death of Wagner Group CEO Dmitry Prigozhin and his top lieutenants are going to impact the war, uh, Russia's war on Ukraine. And a quick programming note, this is going to be the last program uh, that we're going to have until Labor Day. We are taking uh, a week off and we will resume our coverage uh, on Labor Day uh, with the Business Roundtable and then resume our coverage uh, through uh, the rest of that week. Joining us today, as they do every week, to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein uh, of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Alafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Unfortunately, we can't all be together, so Ron will be joining us first, and Richard and Sash will be joining us later in the program. Ron, thanks so very much for joining us.
1: Ah, Great to be here, Margot. Wouldn't be a weekend without it.
0: Indeed, I'm sorry we can't all do it together, uh, but uh, we appreciate you joining us uh, nonetheless. Um, Let's talk. Let's start where we always do, which is sort of macro themes uh, on the market and how the group uh, performed against the news. Obviously, the Federal Reserve, including now the chairman, has sort of right ended all speculation that there's going to be more rate uh, increases. Right, they're committed to. Um, fighting uh, inflation, uh, a little bit of uh, adjustment in employment figures, downward adjustment in employment uh, figures, which almost always happens between the lag, between the announcement of sort of this is what happened last month. And then when they go back uh, at the labor department and and reassess data, how did the group perform relative to broader economic news?
1: Yeah, I think on that first point, you look at Uh, interest rates you know one thing we you know we track every week is the 10-year and the 10-year was down a little bit so i still think there's a debate going on irrespective of what chairman Powell says if you look at the 10-year yield it's 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 down a bit um so there's still a debate in the market um you know where are rates really going to go and conversations i've had more lately are does it stay at this level longer not necessarily go higher um so we'll we'll see what's going on but you would see the 10-year uh, continue to climb, uh, which which we hadn't this week. Uh, that being said, you know, still for the equity markets, a lot of folks are out of the office. Um, I, I think we'll start to see you know people coming back next week because you know schools coming back, kids are going back to college. But the S and P uh, this week was uh, on balance up just under a percent. Um, our our group broadly underperformed the S and P. Um, if you just kind of go across the large caps, you know, Boeing was down a percent and a half. Uh, Northrop was roughly flat. Raytheon was down a little over percent. Um, Lockheed was, was roughly flat. Um, so that kind of that kind of stuff. So, uh, and then it's interesting if you look at the the big movers in the S and P. You know, they were Nvidia, Tesla, Apple, uh, that kind of stuff. So you, you, you saw tech making some big moves, and uh, sometimes our, our group moves. You know, you know, out of phase with tech. Um, so so we'll see. Uh, that that that's what was going on there. Like I mentioned, the ten-year yield was down a bit. Uh, the VIX index, you know, that index of fear that we we track, volatility was you know, roughly roughly flat. Uh, oil prices were roughly flat. You know, WTI crude has been around eighty for a while. Brent around eighty-five for a while. What is notable, however, the the uh, thirty-year mortgage rate continues to climb, uh, and that that adds impacts on you know the consumer and, and and the broader economy. And it and it's interesting. So if you look at the the thirty-year on average across the country, it's about seven point six percent, and that's the highest it's been since September of two thousand. So, you know, that's the highest mortgage rate in in twenty three years, practically. Right. So, um, that 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 has some impact.
0: Highest in twenty three years, but not historically high, right? I mean, you pointed that no, out. That's right. That's uh, right. In last week's show.
1: That's right. right that's, that's right. Yep. One hundred percent.
0: Let me uh, ask you uh, about uh, shutdown uh, risk. Uh, There looks like there is going to be some form of continuing resolution. It's likely to expire uh, in uh, December is what we, uh, early December is what we heard uh, on the Washington Roundtable uh, on Friday. You know, there are folks who are saying that there is actually likely going to be or there is the chance is higher of a government shutdown. Is that impacting investors at all and sinking and running right, I mean, because last you know we discussed this almost every week that it's like oh you know they think it'll be it'll be resolved and yeah there are a lot of people who are out the, at the beach still but is that something no, that I mean, is that, not
1: not yet i mean it hasn't really come up in conversations and and and, and to be blunt Margo in the past we muddle through <laughs> you know what i mean right. and i think that's kind of the default for the market, unless right. something's materially different with this kind of shutdown. If indeed a shutdown were to happen, I think the market would probably take that view. There'd be maybe some shorter-term investors who would try to make a play on that, uh, play the volatility. But um, in you know, in the past, we muddled through, and I think
0: most likely that's probably how the market would think about it. Right. Um, it's it's interesting, you know. I, I keep I keep asking the question, expecting a different answer, and and that uh, you is usually truly a sign of insanity. Um, you uh, put a great note out on a, a drop both in passenger and in cargo uh, volume. Walk us through what's driving it, because what I think is fascinating is right. If you look at airline uh, prices, they are really high, and they're getting high enough that even the most stalwart business customers um and it doesn't matter what airline i've been flying tell me you know i notice people who are front of very front of cabin people now flying somewhere in the middle of the cabin because they're like i'm i'm just not gonna pay that yeah i think there's there's a
1: couple factors actually right i mean it's a a price for sure right and it's you know, ticket pricing isn't is an elastic thing, um, so there's there's that factor, and then two there's just seasonality, right? We're starting to move out of the summer season into the fall, and that tends to be seasonally a, a weaker season. So, you know, the combination of the two, I know on the minds of uh, airline investors, there has been a worry that you're going to see um, th- things start to decline a bit. So, so we'll see, but right now, I would imagine it's a, it's a combination of the two, uh, and 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 the cargo piece, I think that has more to do with, you know, belly cargo and as, as more international traffic picks up with belly cargo, that'll put, continue to put pressure on, uh, you know, dedicated cargo.
0: Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm carrying around a little bit extra belly cargo as well. Um, (laughs) sadly (laughs) this this summer. You're not the only one. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. You guys are on vacation uh, and coming back. Um, Boeing, um, we have been tracking uh, sales uh, to China, or rather, I should say, the the lack of trail sales to China over the last couple of years. Uh, But Boeing is preparing uh, China deliveries. So walk us through um, what they're doing, right, where it resumes. What does it mean?
1: Yeah, we've been, you know tracking you know, aircraft movements you know, kind of in the Seattle area. And, and they've been moving some of the, the, the Chinese, at uh, well, le- least at one point, what was slated for the Chinese airline's inventory around. Uh, there's been speculation that aircraft have been you know, been getting repainted and set up. And it really does look like now there's been some confirmation that uh, in the next couple of weeks, they're going to start delivering some 737s to China. Uh, and that's notable for a couple of reasons. One, because they haven't done it for a very long time. China was the first country to actually ground the the Max uh, after everything that happened, and you know the Chinese authority really kind of went down an independent path. Uh, so to have them back on board is, is an endorsement uh, of sorts, an important endorsement of sorts. Uh, so we'll see. And the speculation is it's China Southern who's going to you know get the first deliveries, uh, but you know that really kind of buoyed Boeing shares uh, uh, late in the week. It's an you know it's an important it's an important country, it's an important region um so we'll we'll see how it all plays out but uh it does seem like there's you know mounting evidence and and some um you know confirmation from the company that um that that this is really happening
0: um and and do you think that unlocks more deals or do they just take delivery of that which they've already ordered and stopped right yeah that's a great assumption because given given the trade tensions uh between the two right i mean we have this yin and yang we want to uh, engage with you, China, right? Uh, uh, Secretary Raimondi, Commerce Secretary Raimondi is going over there. At the same time that we're also, you know, in, in, instituting effectively new penalties on Chinese industry at a time when the Chinese economy is really hurting, right?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a, a, I think, a, a fantastic question and a really good point. Um, so this would be resuming deliveries of aircraft that they already ordered. Um, we haven't seen new orders yet. And that's kind of like the final piece to would have to be in place right so when you think about uh you know kind of resuming you know kind of a natural aerospace business with china from a boeing perspective that would be china placing orders for airplanes and they haven't yet and and that i think you know the point you allude to has more to do with maybe some of the the geopolitical things going on as opposed to just airplane demand and boeing's relationship with the 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 chinese uh, authorities um so i mean that that will you know that's beyond my pay grade I mean, we'll have to see how that all, that all plays out but that would be the final piece to put in place so um, these are aircraft that you know china ordered and then declined to take you know for good reason uh, and now appears to be more comfortable to take some of these airplanes um, so so
0: we'll see uh, speaking about uh, Boeing airplanes uh, and deliveries, one of the most integral uh, elements to the delivery of 737s is Spirit Air Systems uh, that produces uh, in Wichita, the, essentially the complete fuselages of those uh, jets uh, that are then trained over to Renton where the magic happens in the t- tiniest airplane factory on the planet. turns out like you know dozens of airplanes a month, which I still think is one of the most amazing things in the industry. Um, The company has uh, new challenges because of some reporting uh, from our mutual friend, uh, John Ostrower at the air current walk us through what this latest challenge is and what does it mean? uh, Because you had a pretty tough note on the company and uh, a a new target price. Yeah. What John reported
1: uh, was that there's an issue with some of the rear pressure bulkheads uh, on the fuselages delivered. Uh, There's, you know, How the rear pressure bulkhead comes together. There's multiple sources, but the ones that uh, Spirit were assembling that were going in the fuselage uh, had misdrilled holes. And uh, uh, to John's credit, it is the first time I've heard this. And this was originally on the seven eight seven, but now on the seven three seven, these what they call snowmen. So imagine, you know, when I'm drilling a hole in the wall to hang a picture, and I figure out it's just in the wrong spot by a little bit, and I drill another hole, and you have the two holes, and it looks like like a figure eight that's a snowman. And um, that on the pressure bulkheads, uh, rear pressure bulkheads on some of the 737s that there was mistral holes. Uh, and you know Boeing, to their credit, um, figured this out. Uh, I think there's a couple key points here. One, Boeing's doing more quality control work and catching this stuff, right? So if you look at what happened with the vertical tail and now with these mistral holes, these are all things that are kind of falling out of the Boeing quality control system. Hey, you could ask yourself, why didn't they find these before? But, you know, better late than never. I mean, they've got this stuff in place now, and they're they're finding these things. Uh, and then it sort of begs the question, okay, you know, they're non-conforming airplanes. Is there an issue? Are they safe? Uh, you know, the, according to the FAA, there's not an issue. Uh, uh, a need to take these airplanes out of service right now, but they are going to have to get addressed, right? Because they're non-conforming aircraft. And, you know, the question becomes, does this get t- taken care of on a D-check or, or how it's going to be handled? Uh, so on and so forth. Uh, my understanding is it's not on the dash, dash nine or the dash 10 because the, the the bulkhead's different, but on the dash eight, the dash seven uh, and the dash 8,200, that's the funny variant that, the, that Ryan takes. Um, it is an issue probably on about a third of them. And it goes back to the NG. So this is an issue that's been around for a while. Uh, And it just kind of, I think, shows a couple things. Um, One, you have a very important supplier that's having these quality issues. And these quality issues are uh, impacting potentially Boeing's ability to ramp and hit both their delivery targets for their customers and ultimately some of their financial targets. And it's gotten to a point where it seems where it might be untenable. Uh, so, you know, yeah, Boeing is going to have to think hard on how to work with this important supplier and, and work through all this. Right. So we'll, we'll see how that all plays out. My guess is as we go through you know, the, the coming weeks and months, um, they'll, we'll, we'll see how Boeing handles this. Uh, but it also I think there's another story here. It also points to maybe how fragile uh, the aerospace supply chain is, and you know, the, the supply chain was suffering from you know the the difficulty of COVID. COVID wasn't easy for anybody. It was especially hard for aerospace, as we all know. And then, two, I mean, it's a supply chain that uh, was also hit pretty hard by the you know the Partnering for Sus- Success program that Boeing used to have in place. You know, they don't anymore, uh, but at one point they did, and that really put a lot of financial pressure on on suppliers. So. Know, you know, when you think about that financial pressure combined with COVID, combined with you know a ramp that, in some ways, is unprecedented, right? Because the industry shut down and now it's back on. Um, there's it's a it's a fragile supply chain.
0: How does uh, just from your experience, right? We occasionally see very very capable companies, um, whether it's a Boeing, whether it's a Spirit, you know, others. We've seen some challenges. You know, Lockheed has a pretty good production process on uh, F, uh, 35s, you know, you, you occasionally see challenges like this. What's the source of problems like this and why they happen? You know, whether, whether it's at Airbus, whether it's anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, I wish there was a simple
1: answer because then it wouldn't happen, <laughs> you know, but I, I think generally it is, you know, communication inside the company, training, quality control is, you know, is bad news going where it, where it needs to go. Um, it, I think in the end, it, it comes down to some things as as simple. Not, I'm about to frame it as as simple as culture, but you know, culture isn't simple, and culture you know you know covers all of that. Um, and if you've got good communication and good culture inside a company, um, you know, good news and bad news flows up and down, and you you have a tendency to to find these things and correct them you know more quickly so you know and, it, and it changing the culture at a company can be difficult right so that's why i hate to frame it as sort of an easy thing but i don't, I don't think it's just sort of a technical thing but it's it's communication and, and culture in a company and it's funny vargo you asked that right i mean if you asked me that 15 years ago i probably would have given you a different answer but you know the more companies i've looked at over the years the ones that have um, you know really effective cultures and to perform better
0: yeah, you have an eighteen dollar price target uh, on uh, the company. Uh, give uh, the audience a sense of you know where the stock uh, has been trading, and when you know the expectation is that they'll sort of get back to more uh, normal uh, performance.
1: Yeah, we, you know we reduced the price target uh, a bit uh, on the heels of this news, just on the increased risk of you know the 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 time of the turnaround and everything that has happened in the company. Um, if you look at Spear AeroSystems, you know, from its inception back in 2005 until, until today, um, on average, the company has only generated about $50 million of cash per year, free cash flow. If you take out the COVID years, because you could say, hey, that's not really fair to include those. And, and, and I think I agree with that, right? Uh, bad things do happen, but that was sort of like a really, really bad time for everybody. And they generated maybe on the order of about $150 million per year um and then you just kind of capitalize that that gets you to around you know 18 to 20 dollars um you know investors who are more bullish on the shares you know look for more cash in the future uh and and that very well may happen uh but there's a lot of work to be done to get there um so we're you know kind of you know taking a more conservative stance because um you know you're, you're seeing you kind of mishap after mishap and we just hope there's no more of these things right um uh, but but we'll see. Uh, they are in a important position in the supply chain. So like I said before, I mean this has to get resolved one way or the other. So hopefully it can get resolved relatively quickly um, and in a way that's you know good for the company and and you know anybody that has an interest in the company.
0: Uh, and uh, really quickly, it's a big uh, space week. Uh, SpaceX's, uh, SpaceX uh, did a test fire on the Super Heavy, this time with uh, deflectors and, and water. Uh, so the launch pad didn't uh, come apart. Um, the Falcon uh, launched astronauts to the, the International Space Station. Unfortunately, Russia and its uh, uh, sort of returned to the moon for the first time in nearly five decades. Um, you know, they had a mismatch, which is unfortunate, you know, despite everything that's happening between the United States and Russia. Uh, but India um, joined the United States and China in being and Russia and being able to land something uh, on the moon. Pretty amazing. And, and you think it's an actual watershed because of how they did it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, right? Because I think if you look back at, you know, how they've done it and the cost to do it, um, they did it at a fraction of the cost uh, that, you know, the U.S., um has done it and i think even to the russians over the years um so you know good for them i mean it it, it it's um space is a special place um to your point right i mean the russian mishap n- nobody takes any joy in that and you know, you know space historically has been sort of a place of international unity hopefully it can stay that way we'll see but you know having you know india uh land on the moon uh, good for them but it also I think there's a bigger story here about the development of the uh, Indian uh, aerospace uh, industry writ large, right? Uh, we we're seeing more sales of aircraft to the uh, Indian airlines that no doubt will be, you know, there'll be some sort of, uh, I think, stimulus to the, the Indian commercial aerospace industry. And to see the, the space side you know, doing what it's doing, um, it seems like we're really starting to see a burgeoning uh, aerospace industry in, in India.
0: Ron, thanks so very much for joining us. I uh, hope you guys had a terrific uh, vacation. Have a great week off, and we'll see you back on Labor Day. Thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Vargo. Thanks, Sash and Richard. Uh, thanks so very much uh, for joining us. I'm sorry we all can't uh, be
2: uh, together, but it's a pleasure having you both on. Yeah, thanks so much, Vago. It's always a pleasure. So it's a, it's a pleasure to be on. Great shame to have missed Ron earlier.
3: Even if the two of us are without Ron for the moment, it's still great to be on.
0: Uh, Exactly. And you guys had a chance to listen uh, to uh, Ron's uh, comments. Before we get started, uh, a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atonics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And Spirit Aerosystems is sponsoring our coverage of the Air Force Association's airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show. Um, Sash, uh, I want to start with you as I always, as we start each week, uh, even if we're a little bit distributed in time uh, for uh, a look at European markets and how uh, the Defense and Aerospace Group performed uh, relative to the broader market.
2: Yeah, okay. I mean, it was actually it was a it was a pretty good week for the European aerospace and defense sector. I would say overall, the defense stocks were significantly uh, stronger performers than uh, the civil stocks, um, which is odd. You know, you can't necessarily see that in some of the figures. You know, Airbus was up two percent, um, which was a which was a pretty good uh, performance. But if you look at the defense stocks, defense stocks were up two point two percent on average. Civil about one point six percent, and the the big performers in defense. Uh, BA Systems, which had had a pretty bad week last week after the announcement of the ball aerospace deal, recovered most of that. So um, it was up three percent. Dassault up three percent as well, which I think is a sort of delayed reaction to the the second tranche of Rafales for uh, Indonesia. Kinetic, which has been a really pretty weak performer this year. Kinetic. Uh, started the year at uh you know nearly four pounds and then troughed out last week at uh, closer to three not for any great reason i think the market just couldn't work out why to why to get interested or why to remain interested in the stock um but that was up five percent last week and then Saab and we're going to talk about Saab uh, later but Saab was also up three percent so you know if there's a theme there combat aircraft in europe was i think whatever um Uh, investors really wanted to buy. But most of the other stocks had a a pretty good week overall. Uh, And
0: how uh, did, um, I I don't think anybody uh, really anywhere is surprised that Yevgeny Prigozhin uh, and uh, the top Wagner uh, lieutenants um, were ultimately assassinated in the wake of their aborted uh, mutiny. There was a lot of messaging in it. It was exactly two months um, to the day uh, since the mutiny uh, in the last uh, couple of months. Uh, you know, Putin has gone to great lengths to sort of clip uh, Wagner's uh, wings. Um, so, r- really, it was sort of a matter of of, of time uh, that that this was going to happen. Has that changed defense spending sentiments uh, in Europe at all?
2: I think that there is still a mismatch uh, between what some European defense ministries say they're going to spend and the increasing realization. That the war in Ukraine is going to go on a very, very long time; that European nations are going to have to bear an increasingly high proportion of the spending; and that Europe itself, you know, and I mean, you know, Western and Central Europe is going to have to rearm for a sustained period of time, partly to deal with the, uh, you know, huge amount of equipment that has been donated to Ukraine, but also, you know, because a lot of European nations have underspent in the last decade or so. And that will become an even bigger priority as you go through your presidential elections. And if there is the um, uh, concern that uh, Mr. Trump comes back as president, that's really going to put the pressure on European nations. But you know, that's the that's the sort of the known macro environment. A lot of European defence budgets, the UK in particular, don't re- actually reflect those hard realities yet. Um, so. You know, Prigozhin is, uh, Prigozhin's death and the clipping of Wagner's wings uh, is sort of part of that. You know, let's let's assume for the moment that it makes Putin stronger for a while. And, you know, one of the most interesting comments that I uh, uh, was told about almost immediately after Prigozhin's death was, well, it's all about redart or redut now. And I asked, is that another private military company and the answer was yes it's it's the private military company that is linked to Gazprom the russian hmm. uh, uh petrochemicals giant so uh you know one uh, pmc goes under um i think prigozhin's death is genuinely a case of it could have happened to a nicer person um uh, but more again to uh, you know just going to uh, come to the fore again uh i and Putin is probably slightly strengthened by this in that he isn't always looking over his shoulder at Prigozhin and Prigozhin supporters, if only for a few weeks or months or so. Um, but European defence budgets have got a long way uh, to catch up on this. And I think, you know, uh, by the time we record again, what's going to be interesting is the run-up to the big DSEI defence show in London and how the UK government and the other governments that are attending and the companies, how they decide to telegraph um, you know, what is seen to be the, the environment for the next three, six, nine months or so. Uh, it is uh, going to be uh, fascinating. R-
0: Richard, is there anything uh, you want to add? I mean, we ended up talking about this uh, in greater uh, detail on the Washington uh, podcast, but I just wanted to get your sense uh, on, uh, on it, you know, whether it changes any dynamic as somebody uh, who enjoyed studying uh, the Soviet Union as much as I did when we were in college.
3: Yeah, and we're returning to those days of not knowing exactly what's going on, but being able to speculate and just how much, um, you know, abhorrent behavior can be demonstrated. Uh, I don't think it changes anything. Yeah, completely, completely agree. It's, uh, you know, still the same. Um, you know, the one thing to remember about, you know, dictatorships like this with instability built into the system is that things are fine till they're not. Uh, right. So we could collapse tomorrow um, or it could just keep going with uh, another terrible sentence. just like the last one was for this part of the world, sadly.
0: I want to get to some of the specific news and get your sense on some of the things uh, that Ron and I uh, talked about at the top of the uh, show. Uh, But I wanted to get, Richard, your sense, right? I mean, there is uh, the decline that Ron discussed in passenger uh, traffic uh, and uh, cargo. You know, we did uh, joke a little bit about belly cargo. Uh, Let he who is free of sin cast the first stone. Um, But uh, one of the things I also wanted to get your take on was Uh, the really terrific uh, and alarming New York Times story that as traffic has increased, the number of sort of near misses and the rate of them, both the number and the rate of them uh, has increased. Uh, And some of it, it appears to come down to just sloppiness, uh, unfortunately. Talk to us about the cargo uh, figures, but also what is causing these um, near mishaps.
3: Cargo fluctuates. We all know that. And I think Ron discussed things quite ably in terms of the comeback and belly. No, no, no more jokes about belly. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think it's anything to be alarmed about. Certainly the other economic indicators are solid. You know, it could be any number of factors. If nothing I'd, I'd get concerned about. A little bit alarmed about what we've been discussing for some time, which is the giant I don't want to say bubble, but significant increase in capacity for cargo conversions coming down the pike. But that certainly has the potential to make an overcapacity problem worse. If indeed we have an overcapacity problem, but it's something to keep your eye on. Um, in terms of safety and your misses. Yet great times piece, followed on by a Slate.com piece. There were a number of pieces. You know, this unfortunately is part of a broader pattern of, well, uh, talent in the industry. You know, I mean... Ultimately, we need more people. We need more people everywhere, whether it's MRO shops, whether it's the supplier companies that go into feed it to, uh, to feed Spirit Aerosystems, whether it's people who do air traffic control. It's not just people, it's experienced people. And unfortunately, it looks like, partially as a consequence of the pandemic, there was a bit of a, a tranche break between folks with experience and newcomers who are being hired now. We need more people across the board, but boy, it would be good to bring seasoned veterans back because so much of these businesses, particularly safety, depend upon that level of experience. So that's a real area of concern. You know, more money for more people, definitely good, but more of an emphasis on the kind of, you know, mentoring programs and whatever else that allows for the transition of experience between generations. Absolutely key. You know, uh, can't help some of it. Unfortunately, a lot of folks have retired, but maybe a few folks can be brought back.
0: Sash, I, I want to uh, go to you on the air safety issue before we uh, go on and, and talk about Boeing and Spirit and uh, all the defense uh, orders. Europe was as locked down uh, as uh, anywhere else in the world. Indeed, in some places uh, even more so than in the United States. Traffic had almost ground to a halt, and now it's surging back. Right? I mean, air, air, you know, tickets are expensive, uh, and Europe still remains the world's, world's most popular tourist uh, destination, uh, with something like three quarters, right? And it's like the half a million, uh, half a billion people uh you know vacation in europe uh, each each year how has europe been handling this surge and is there any uh, indication of an increase in sort of near misses uh and safety related incidents
2: and if not why not the depressing answer to that bargain is that europe has been dealing with it as only europe can which is by having periodic strikes um and hence the capacity controls that are necessary to maintain safety in a in a fairly stressed system, have been imposed uh, from above. You know, in a force majeure, a series of force majeure situations where, um, uh, in particular, Eurocontrol, but also uh, various uh, national air traffic control centres, have have had a pretty high rate of strikes in the last six months or so. And therefore, what's happened has been there's been a lot of cancellations of European control. Um, You know, you really don't want to take a late in the day flight. Domestically in Europe, because the chance of that being rescheduled is quite high um, uh, and being rescheduled aggressively to the day after or the day after that. Um, And this is, you know, to some extent dealing with the the shortage of capacity. I think what we're going to see, though, um, I mean, I'm very interested by uh, Richard and Ron's comments because, you know, it feels to me we're back in the last cycle again. And, you know, you'll remember in the last cycle, the Uh, The FAA started peak lopping uh, on traffic on on the northeast and basically limiting the number of flights per hour from memory coming into LaGuardia in particular. And once they start doing that, airlines have to make very, very painful decisions about which flights to to do. And they tend to start to respond to that by trying to put larger aircraft on so that they actually maintain the traffic. But uh, they don't have as many slots uh, that they need to, uh, to, to bid for. And I think that what we will see because it, I, I agree with Richard it's really hard to put increased capacity on to actually find trained air traffic controllers or, or even you know semi-trained air traffic controllers and put them back on quickly I think that we will see uh, capacity management by the air traffic control systems. Uh, I hope uh, in Europe it's not always done by strike, but I think we will see we will see that sort of those controls increasingly being put on and as they are, airlines will go for bigger aircraft. This has implications in the narrow body sector. Uh, you know, the middle of the market, which has become 180 to 220 seats, becomes the market in that in narrow bodies. Um, and that means that for Airbus, the A319 dies, the uh, A320 pretty much dies, and for Boeing, the 737 8 uh, and, and, you know, the manufacturers are, are increasingly producing long gauge uh, aircraft. Wide bodies, it's not quite such a, a big issue yet. But uh, I suspect that, uh, you know, on average, we're going to see a, a trend towards the larger wide bodies as well. I think that's the only way these capacity issues can, air traffic control capacity issues can be dealt with, um, because I don't think there is a great deal of space uh, or capacity left in the system, and training just takes too long.
0: Richard, would you agree with that?
3: Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, that's exactly right. Things are straining, and you know, unfortunately, the one place it doesn't show up. Is safety. And that was the point I think of the Times article. You know, it doesn't show up until it does, <laughs> you know, with right. with MRO, just so much throughput, with pilots, well, just so much people, so many people, you know, but then there's safety where a shortage of experience tends to show up in, well, near misses. And I'm glad that's being reported. You know, thank God we have a, you know, free and independent press yet again, um, because we really do need more of that emphasis on talent and experience.
0: Uh, yes, uh, I'm I'm all for a free and independent press, uh, and, and thankfully we have it for now. Um, let me uh, go to uh, Boeing uh, deliveries, right? Ron and I discussed uh, a little bit. Obviously, the Chinese have not been ordering Boeing aircraft, and the resumption of uh, already ordered airplanes are coming as uh, Gino Raimondo, the U.S. Um, uh, uh, Commerce Secretary, is going to China On the one hand to reduce tensions on the other hand the administration is putting into effect some pretty tough economic measures uh as ron and i discussed um at a time when the chinese economy is already reeling uh richard so you know from the standpoint of deliveries does it change any vectors i mean what does it what does it mean
3: what does it mean Richard? what does it mean well it's positive you know both in terms of gee they're not um permanently shutting off the uh, u.s and boeing and on the other hand uh, and on the also on the positive side that they have the demand necessary to uh, mandate that they start taking these jets what it does not mean i think ron indicated very clearly orders that that hasn't happened since like 2017 so until it does you know then things are not fully back in good graces you know uh, Commerce Secretary Romano's visit was sort of this. I I think people have pointed out the bifurcated nature. On the one hand, it was to continue clamping down on tech trade, but to continue to promote other kinds of trade. It's really unlikely that you can, well, persist with that level of bifurcation. Tension produces more tension. It shows up in trade moves, well, like a decision to cut off Boeing from jetliner orders. It's hard to see how this plays out positively, but at least the current backlog can start to be delivered and that'll bring some additional revenue in for Boeing. And, and of course, just keep the lines of trade and communication open. Sash,
0: just a, a quick word on China trade before we get to uh, spirit.
2: I, I mean, I do not think that the Chinese will um, look at what uh, you know, the, 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 the visit says so much as actually what uh, your administration is putting into effect. They're very, very good at looking through the optics of uh, individual uh, cabinet members or uh, or indeed uh, more important members of the government um, uh, visiting them and, and deciding what it is that the the greater U.S. Uh, effect is on, on their country. And I think they will be pretty upset by what they see. Uh, you know, step back a bit. Chinese economy slowing right down. They're just not going to need as many aircraft as they expected even six months ago looking forward. So it's not going to be terribly painful for them. If they decide not to take that many Boeing aircraft or that many Airbus aircraft, or indeed whether they decide to take uh, Embraer aircraft or or not, um, Chinese air, airlines are well equipped. They are have very very young fleets. Um, they can afford to slow down the rate of uh, deliveries quite dramatically. If that also delivers a um, you know a political message, administration will be pretty happy with that.
0: Um, uh, Richard, uh, to uh, Spirit, right, I mean, one of the most important companies certainly to uh, Boeing's uh, production ecosystem uh, is uh, Spirit Aerosystems. I mean, uh, you know, the, the job the company does is nothing short of incredible to uh, build effectively 737s that then get shipped to Renton uh, and at the world's uh, tiniest production facility, right, turn out dozens of airplanes uh, uh, a month. Um, with, you know, plans to be increasing uh, production while still making changes uh, in in design. Um, As I mentioned at the top of the show, our mutual friend John Ostrower of uh, the Air Current uh, reported um, uh, drilling um, uh, problems uh, on, I think, the aft bulkhead. What does this mean in sort of the string of issues that we've uh, seen uh, and and what does it mean uh, for a company that's just, I mean, integral to the entire ecosystem? Uh, you know, it's growing on the defense side. We had Mark Miklos, uh, the defense and space uh, boss, uh, on the Airpower podcast, uh, where they talked about the stuff they're doing out 53K and the and the Valor, uh, the V280, uh, and the growth they're seeing in hypersonics and space and elsewhere. Give, give us sort of your your sense on on what this means uh, ultimately.
3: A number of things are at play here, and it is all very concerning. And of course, you know, failure is not an option because this, this company plays a key role in so many programs, as you say. As a matter of fact, I remember that CH-53K sponsor work, I think, was the first thing, the first defense work they scored after they became independent from Boeing back in 2006. That was one of their uh, their signature wins in an effort to b- diversify away from the 737. Um, here again, experience. You know, as a matter of fact, I remember years ago, many years ago, you um, being told that hole drilling was one of those places where experience was hugely important, how to do it, how to rectify mistakes, everything like that. And it really was people on the shop floor going over and saying, no, not like that, we do it like this. And here again, you have that trench break between retired veterans and people who've come on uh, in conjunction with the post-COVID surge, but without perhaps the necessary level of experience. Old experience, people need to be brought back in. you know that is that i think is a, such a consistent theme in everything we're seeing here um the big question becomes you know obviously boeing found this okay at what point does boeing step in and i the i, I don't really know what form that would take um but you know would they demand a greater level of oversight of who knows is there are any number of possibilities um from Spirit standpoint, it clearly shows the need to just get more people to keep on top of this. Um, And, you know, thankfully, it was discovered, it was reported, the system works, it's sufficiently transparent to uh, correct for problems like this. But nevertheless, they're going to need to show that they're on top of this and bringing people in for additional quality control and inspection.
0: Um, Sash, I'm going to go to you in a second. But first, uh, a reminder to our audience to check out our weekly podcasts, Canvas Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavas and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Marina, GE Aerospace Company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace. Then I co-host with our very own JJ Gerkler. Go ahead, uh, Sash.
2: Yeah, I mean, I just just to I I think Richard's point about experience, I mean, this is this is actually the same point that we were making about air traffic control. Uh, too many good experienced people were lost during the pandemic. Um, and uh, that means that the, the overall quality of the workforce is not uh, as high as you would want. Um, I'd make one other point, though, about the 77 uh, fuselage in particular, which is that and I've been quite critical of Spirit in the past, but uh, and I'd you know, quite like to provide a bit of balance to that. I just wonder whether, because it is a legacy design, it's a design which has been worked on and reworked and, you know, redesigned multiple times over, you know, 50 plus plus years, that the 77 may just be a very difficult structure, but you know paradoxically, to build relative to an all-new design which has a much higher proportion of machined parts where tolerances or, or composite parts and where tolerances should be very very consistent. Now I recognize that Boeing's experience with 787 would, um, would tend to be a rather you know negative counter to that but I, I do wonder whether the 737 because so much of it is uh, uh, you know relies on um, experience, uh, relies on uh, indiv- you know, individuals who've worked on it over the past and why, because there's still a fairly high proportion of touch labour involved, um, it might not be much harder to produce than a, than a new design and hence much more sensitive to uh, individual levels of skill in the workforce. Um, and that, uh, you know, from Boeing's point of view, that's a problem, clearly. It also, though, points to the upside for Boeing if they ever, whenever... Uh, get round to a new narrow body design that the ability to take out uh 30 40 years of legacy design in a in a major part of the aircraft structure um might well make a simpler to manufacture uh fuselage than they currently have uh, and that would be very very healthy for for them and for the for the manufacturing system overall
0: Ron explained the issue of a the sort of figure eight uh, holes. Uh, Richard, I gotta go back to you. I mean, is is that uh, the issue? And also just really quickly bring the audience uh, up to date, right? when when folks say this is the latest seven thirty seven problem, they have been other challenges. Just sort of give everybody a summary on how this, you know that there's been sort of other news. We're going to move on uh, from this topic, but Richard, uh, real quick, right? I mean, when people say these are the latest 737 problems, uh, put that in context, because there was um, another issue that we saw earlier. Uh, And and I I think, uh, uh, Sash, what you're talking about are sort of the figure eight holes, as as Ron explained at the top of the program. Richard, just uh, really quickly... Um, is it a design issue? I mean, in fact, in fact, because this is kind of an older part that may have you know, a lot more touch labor that gets involved in it. I mean, it, it sort of doesn't explain quality issues, but it, it could, right? I mean, if it's an unnecessary complicated thing and, and, and drilling holes is a very uh, uh, sophisticated, is more sophisticated than you think, especially if you haven't fully automated it. Um, is it a design issue? And uh, Richard, and then, real quick, bring the audience up to speed on what the earlier 737 problem was, right? And people say this is the latest, and there might be some people in the audience going, wait a minute, I didn't know there was another issue.
3: Yeah, back a few months ago, there was an issue with um, one of the suppliers of three for uh, the aft fuselage uh, attachment brackets at Memory Serves that had some kind of defect, probably not too dissimilar from this. So, unfortunately, it's all become part of the greater, you know, what we refer to as quality escapes, where, you know, something is caught after it's been installed. These are fiendishly complicated fuselages, as, as all fuselages are. There's, you know, many, many hundreds of suppliers and different components. And, again, the system's working, but it is fiendishly complex, and there are clearly issues, uh, as we've discussed. You know, Stash, it raises a great point. This thing was designed in engineering vellum back in the 60s um modern designs simply have a greater level of precision built into that uh, that transition between design and and manufacture you know everything is sort of aligned with lasers and and very carefully done there's some of that in the 737 but some of it isn't some is heavily dependent on you know just the way things have always been because you know the great fuselage machines been cranking them out for a very long time and that of course means it's more dependent upon talent you know, and and that experience that's accrued over the years. and again, gets us back to our central point about everything being dependent upon that connectivity that was disrupted during the pandemic between people with experience and new hires brought in because of the rapid nature of the production surge. Uh,
0: let's uh, we are now uh, going to go into the uh, fighter. Uh, And military aircraft portion of our uh, conversation. Um, I don't know how much more there is to say, uh, right? I mean, we did talk about the Apache deal that Poland had ordered. So that's been formalized. Uh, The Indonesians uh, and F-15EXs, that's been formalized as well. Uh, So that's kind of good news. The new news uh, is um, Brazil uh, and uh, Gripen's. Uh, uh, more CH-53Ks, which is very good for Sikorsky, especially since it looks like the Germans are not going to go for the airplane. Uh, the um, the CH-47 won that, uh, leaving some people surprised. Uh, and then we have LOT-19 on F-35. Since two of those are US ones, uh, Richard, why don't you uh, start us off on it and then Sash kind of get your, your sense. Uh, and Richard, if you want to add to that as well, right? Brazil is getting more GRIPINs, uh, the GRIPIN-E, and whether or not, you know, what, what that necessarily means, given, unfortunately, this incredibly good airplane is on the market and has basically two customers, the Swedish, uh, Royal Swedish Air Force uh, and uh, the uh, Brazilians. Go, go ahead, Richard.
3: In general, the market is still white hot. That's the broad theme here, of course, in the last production line, which might have conceivably had a bit of slack, uh, which is uh, Saab, no longer does. Um, Nobody has any Slack whatsoever. Kind of interesting, this lot of F-35s is the first one Where uh, the total number, 173, I believe, is significantly higher than the amount they're anticipating on building. (laughs) Previous lot buys have been around the 150 a year range. um, And given the max they've been able to achieve is in the 140s, and the most they've been able to conceive of building is the 156 range, this is 173. Raises the, and more orders arriving seemingly every week. Uh, It raises the question of when the heck these orders can be filled. And, you know, we've discussed the theme of maybe the U.S. will, you know, um, let it go and just say, okay we'll take fewer. But Congress seems to have other ideas. So this is the biggest single question, when these orders can be filled. Um, I'd be cautious about the Indonesian F-15s. When you read the fine print, it said up to 24. (laughs) Meanwhile, it's up to however number of Rafales. And up to a certain point of participation in KF-21 with Korea. You know, up until the F A 50s, they took a few years ago, they'd never taken a new fighter jet from the West. Um, And I'm not so sure they had from the East either. They were operators of used A-4s and F-16s. So big ramp-up plans, uncertain as to how the budget will cope with that.
0: Uh, Sash, uh, your take, and uh, especially uh, when it comes to the Gripen, whether it, it changes any sort of uh, fundamental dynamic, whether lease on life, greater a- access, and, and discuss any, any, any of the other uh, orders that you'd like as well.
2: Yeah, sure. Okay. I mean, I'll, I'll start with the Griffin, I'll start with Brazil. Um, the Brazilian Air Force has always had a, a requirement for uh, over 100 gripers. um, but there has, for a long time, been a pretty big gap between uh, requirement and budget. Um, and you know this this feels very familiar in almost any Western airport. Uh, so what they did was to slice their their grip and requirement up into three tranches. Uh, originally thirty six uh, aircraft, then they increased that uh, to forty. This is now we have um, an announcement that they have got the funding for the second tranche, another thirty four. Presumably in five six years time, we'll get the tranche for the th- for the uh, for the remaining thirty four or so aircraft. Um, it's great. For, for the program, for Saab, uh, it will extend Gripen manufacturing well into the 2030s. And that's the holy grail for right. every uh, European fighter manufacturer at the moment. Um, you know, BA Systems, Leonardo uh, want to extend uh, Eurofighter Typhoon manufacturing so that they have a, a seamless bridge to Tempest. Dassault wants to uh, extend Rafale production uh, into the 2030s so they have a, a pretty seamless. Um, uh, bridge to uh, SCAF and this is Saab so doing exactly the same thing and for you know as that skyline extends um, it should be good for share prices although strangely it doesn't have much of a, of a long-term impact but you'd think that the, the you know the price earnings ratio would improve just because you've got a better visibility of earnings um, and you know from the point of view of Saab these aircraft will be uh, license assembled in Brazil but there will be a lot of Swedish content Particularly in the systems, um, you know, radar, electronic warfare, um, and uh, the engines as well. So I think you know it, it'll be great work for for Swedish uh, aircraft industry. Tie this in then to actually some of the stuff that's been coming out of Ukraine. President Zelensky visited Sweden this week, um, and he tweeted a you know very positive uh, set of conclusions uh, from his meetings. One of which was that Ukrainian pilots are already testing uh Gripen's. uh and the right. the word coming out of sweden is that if if sweden can make aircraft available to ukraine ukraine will take them um that why is that good two reasons firstly um that's the the start of a relationship on Gripen that may well i'm hypothesizing now but it's my job um ultimately extend to license uh, production of grippens in ukraine um, that's a 2030s thing, but that just, you know, it's it's adding to the Gripen user group, which is good because it's pretty thin, let's be honest. Um, and it may well then give that uh, extension of the skyline that the Brazilian order we just talked about is doing. Second thing that I think is really encouraging um, is that what this shows is the F-16 is not the only game in town. So by uh, Sweden potentially providing Grippens, potentially talking about licensed manufacturing, that puts pressure on the US government to continue to free up f-16s and f-16 licenses and possibly ultimately some form of license production of f-16 um uh you know late model f-16s in country as well um that would be much harder to do if it wasn't obvious that sweden's gotten a, you know a plan b uh with grippen so you know the, the ukrainians being sensible they are definitely making sure that they they have at least two options for everything uh, and this is all part of the uh, the longer term rearmament of, of Ukraine and the degree to which that rearmament is um, broadening from land systems. And the Swedes also talked about license production of up to a thousand CB-90 uh, armament, uh, infantry fighting vehicles uh, to um, uh, combat aircraft.
0: Um, let me uh, ask one last uh, question, because uh, we are very unfortunately time uh, tight on time. Uh, do uh uh, you know, the, the United States has, uh, or at least uh, news reports show uh, that Washington is being critical and criticizing the Ukrainians, not focusing their offensive, being too uh, broadly uh, distributed. Uh, one of Ukraine's senior commanders was saying, look, we have to stop the Russians in the Northeast, uh, and we do have to kind of fight everywhere uh, a bit. What's, what's your sense, uh, right? I mean, we discussed on the Friday roundtable that leaks like this are not good, I understand the United States is trying to urge its ally uh, to be a little bit more focused and to make more gains. There's a lot riding on it, obviously, when they're not making gains. Not only is Zelensky in political trouble, uh, but uh, all of the people who are pushing for support in the United States are looking at this and saying, look, we're, we're not making progress. Um, ultimately, what's your reading uh, of the battlefield? Because others you talk to say it's going to be tough going no matter where you go, because the Russians have dug in in so many other places. And they are trying to take advantage of Ukraine focusing in one place to actually kind of swing uh, and take back territory of their own, particularly in the north- Northeast.
2: Yeah, I buy that. Um, and it's not just taking back more territory. By um, going on the offensive in the Northeast, what they're doing is they're distracting the Ukrainians. Uh, and they are um, with- forcing the Ukrainians to withdraw forces that might have greater success in the South, just to blunt their offensive. Um I I recognise both arguments. I neither of them are wrong. Uh I think though it's very, very cowardly for us to criticize the Ukrainians when they're the guys whose lives are on the line. And the, the casualties there put into uh, you know, the pale the casualties that the US and its allies have incurred cumulatively since Vietnam. Um, it's you know they're the guys taking the casualties and it's their country you know we're saying give give a bit a bit of your country away because you can you can do a bit better in the south um i didn't that's our call to make uh, as the west um the ukrainians are acutely aware of the the political dynamics that they have to continue to uh you know generate support from all of their donor nations. but i think for us to start micromanaging their offense and their defense and therefore you know how many Ukrainians die? I I find that I think that's morally pretty repugnant, frankly.
0: Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Wouldn't be uh, a weekend uh, without you. Uh, hope you guys have uh, a terrific week, uh, an extra day off, and look forward to having you back on uh, all together uh, on uh, Labor Day for when we restart our coverage. Thanks very much. Thanks, Alvaro. Always a pleasure.
3: Always great to be on, Vargo. Thank you.
0: Uh, Thanks very much. And thanks to all of you for joining us. And a very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. Hope everybody has uh, a terrific week off uh, and and, uh, managed to uh, get some rest. And we look forward to resuming our uh, coverage in a week or so's time. Thanks very much and hope everybody also has a terrific Labor Day holiday. Take care.